Welcome. This is Craig Applegath, and this is the 21st Century Imperative Podcast, the podcast series that explores the insights and approaches of scientists, designers, planners, engineers, business entrepreneurs, and other successful change makers who are finding effective ways to meet the three critical challenges posed by the 21st Century Imperative. These are how will we continue to live on our planet without destroying our biosphere? How will we repair and regenerate the environmental damage we have already caused? And how will we adapt to the escalating impacts of climate change? Each episode will feature an interview with an individual whom I think you will find not only inspiring, but also very relevant to helping you answer the question, what can I do to meet the challenges of the 21st century imperative? If you're familiar with the building and design sector in Canada, you will know that Sustainable Architecture and Building magazine, SABMAG, is a go-to source for green design news and commentary. Our podcast guest today is its editor and founder, Jim Taggart. Jim started his career as an architect, receiving his master's degree in architecture from the University of Sheffield, UK in 1980, and then working in design and construction for 12 years in the UK and then in Canada before leaving architectural practice to pursue parallel interests in education and communications. Over the past 25 years, Jim has lectured and written extensively on sustainable design and urban development with a particular focus on the use of wood in contemporary architecture. He is the author or editor of some 20 books, including the award-winning Towards a Culture of Wood Architecture in 2011, and the Architecture of Engagement in 2019. And he is currently working on a second edition of Tall Wood Buildings with Vancouver architect Michael Green. Jim has also taught in the Bachelor of Architectural Sciences program at the British Columbia Institute of Technology since 2004. In 2010, Jim was made a fellow of the Royal Architectural Institute of Canada, and in 2012, was named British Columbia Premier's Wood Champion. In today's interview, I will be talking to Jim about what he wants to do with the SABMAG Ideas platform he has created and his thoughts on how we might design buildings to be more effective in addressing the impacts of climate change, what the future looks like or could look like, and what advice he would have for someone setting out to make a difference. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Jim, thanks very much for making the time to do this podcast today. I think the last time we talked, you were interviewing me about the Bill Fish Forest Stewardship Education Center, as it turns out, the first certified living building challenge in uh, Canada. So why don't we start by you telling listeners how you ended up editing and writing Sab Mag. By the way, I should add for listeners that this is an abbreviation of Sustainable Architecture and Buildings Magazine. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. Right. Yeah. So thank you very much for the invitation, Craig. It's a privilege to be part of this. And uh, yes, you're right. I think you and I had our previous contact over Billfish, and um, that uh, project won one of our Canadian Green Building Awards, SABMAG. That's right. That's right. SABMAG also runs an award program uh, for green buildings, and that's been running, I think, since ooh, 2008 or so. So yes, how did I get involved in SABMAG? I actually got involved in communications and education in architecture by chance, I guess, is the, is the nicest way of putting it. I was an associate with Peter Busby here in Vancouver uh, for a few years, and um, I discovered uh, I was having a lot more difficulty than I used to in interpreting drawings and in 
adding up columns of figures and other serious stuff related to architecture. And I was ultimately, um, I went and consulted first with a, an optometrist and then with an ophthalmologist and discovered that I had a degenerative eye condition. So I ended up three years after that having to leave architectural practice. And I looked back over my resume, I guess, and I went back as far as my education at the University of Sheffield in England, I realized that as far as my professors were concerned, it looked as if my talent actually lay in communications. Everything I wrote, everything I spoke about, uh, I got A's for. Everything that I designed, I was kind of in the B-plus range. So after a little bit of soul-searching, I uh, reinvented myself, if you like, as a journalist and as a uh, an editor, ultimately, and as a public speaker and a professional uh, a deliverer of professional development seminars. And so that evolved into SABMAG. I had been working on Wood Design and Building magazine with uh, editor Don Griffith, and uh, he decided that rather than be affiliated with the Canadian Wood Council any longer, he wanted to go his own way. And we together hatched a plot to launch SABMAG. And it came out in 2006 and it's been published uh, it was originally six issues a year but now it's quarterly it's been going since uh, 2006 had you before you actually dove into doing a magazine and editing it full time had you been writing articles while you were an architect before that you know i cannot remember i know within the architectural world i had written proposals i'd written all manner of things I don't recall whether I'd had a published article before I left Busby Bridger, as it then was, maybe one or two, but it really began in 1993 when I left Busby Bridger and uh, I began to look for other ways of making a living and keeping myself entertained. So it became really important and meaningful at that point. Uh, it did indeed, yes. Saab Magazine is really the go-to magazine for green design in Canada. And as such, you have a significant voice and influence in the architectural and development communities. What do you most want to accomplish with the platform you have created? Well, thank you, first of all, for saying that. Um, we sometimes like to think that for ourselves. And I have to say that anecdotally... The, um, the feedback I get on the magazine from architects I meet at conferences and elsewhere is always very positive. And perhaps the best compliment we ever had was from somebody, and I don't actually remember who it was. He put his head, hand to his forehead and he said, oh, he said, I dread it when SABMAG comes into my office because I know I've lost my afternoon. I've got to read it from cover to cover. And so um, <laughs> that, that really was the ultimate compliment. But when I came to Canada from the UK, the one thing that I missed, or one of the things that I missed, was a magazine in the UK called The Architect's Journal. And what we, we're all aware of Architectural Review as an international publication, but The Architect's Journal used to come out every week, and it would have details, building details, it would have cost information, it would have all kinds of stuff that I wasn't able to access in the same way when I got here. What I found was that everybody was keeping their that kind of information close to their chests, some kind of professional advantage I think they felt they had by doing that. But when the sustainable design movement broke out, uh, 2002, I guess we should say, when LEED came to Canada, it all changed. People began to believe that they were part of a, a system of sharing or, or they recognized the benefit of sharing. Uh, if we were going to advance best practices and make sure that we learned and shared all the lessons that we as individuals had accumulated over the course of doing projects. And so it provided us with an opportunity 
to create a show-and-tell magazine on sustainable design. So what we focused on was completed buildings. Ideas are one thing, but I remember traveling in Sweden back in 2013, and uh, one of the architects there said, in Sweden, we talk about an implementation deficit. It's the difference between what we want to achieve and what we actually achieve. And um, that was really the gap that we wanted to fill. Uh, there are lots of magazines out there that talk about architectural ideas. They show us beautiful buildings and they have iconic photographs that are taken before anybody has moved into the picture or inhabited the building. I wanted to do something that was very real, that represented the actual accomplishments of a building. And as it turned out, without predicting this, what has happened is that, again, many architects that I run into say, oh, I was so glad you published that school in the last issue because I was able to take it to my client and say, look, they can do it in Winnipeg. Why can't we do it here? And so that also provided the, the reinforcement of the idea that we should focus on Canadian work, Canadian practice, because there's no escaping those stories. If you can say to somebody, look, we can do it in Canada, they're working under the same conditions in the same practice environment as we are, let's try to do a lead gold, a lead platinum, to do a net zero, to do a whatever. And so that was really the philosophy behind it. And we have reinforced that by including technical articles from subject experts. We have structural engineers, we have mechanical engineers, all kinds of others, envelope specialists doing technical articles that we hope are leading edge. And certainly, I think given the time constraints that architects operate under, the idea that they can get a meaningful article, they can read it in 30 minutes and in all likelihood manage to get an hour's worth of continuing education credit, that seems to work for people. And I've also expanded into what I call practice articles. So when LEED arrived, we inherited the checklist that the US had had, and yes, we adapted it slightly mm -hmm. to Canada. Um, but I wanted to broaden the understanding of what sustainability is, and I believe that it's got a very strong social component. It's one of those few things that are absolutes. I cannot be sustainable without my neighbor being sustainable, without my community being sustainable. So I like to think of it as being something that has a very, very strong social component. And it doesn't matter really if, if we produce a lead platinum or net zero building, uh, if everybody else's buildings are still not performing, then we don't achieve sustainability. So it's very much a collective effort. And so the practice articles have been focused on talking about, for example, just a month or two ago, we did an article on the new RELY standard, uh, which is to do with resilience, community resilience. community resilience. And so I don't think many people would have been familiar with that when we published it. But we also talk about, uh, we, we did a, one on universal access, so accessible design. And of course, that's something dear to my heart because there are buildings that I struggle to navigate because, uh, because of the way they've been designed. So that's it, really. That's what we've been trying to do. And, uh, well, we've been going since 2006. So that's, uh, we're at our 13th anniversary now. And it really is a go-to magazine for both details and big picture. But let me tell you one other story about how your magazine gets used. Um, <laughs> when we're doing a sustainable design workshop with a client at the very beginning of the project in a visioning workshop, mm -hmm. we will print what looks like a blank cover of Sab Mag. Uh -huh. And then we'll ask them to draw what the cover should look like when their building is written about in Sab Mag. <laughs> 
And one of the best slides I have for a presentation is one of the workshop guys for Bill Fish holding up his picture of what it looks like. And then on right beside it is a picture of our building, uh, Bill Fish, on the front cover of SAPMAG. So it was, it was well, perfect. It was like, wow, that turned out really well. So it, it's, a, it's a wonderful tool. Everyone knows it's become the gold standard. So when you do this, everyone's like, yeah, we definitely want our building to be on SABMAG. Well, thank you. That's a, that's a heartwarming anecdote. <laughs> I, you know what? I'll, I'll send you the uh, slide. I think I you'll, you'll enjoy yeah. it. Um, in your work as the editor of SABMAG, you see the best green design in Canada come across your desk. Can you tell listeners about some of the most effective and consequential ideas you are seeing? Well, as I said, I think our fundamental responsibility as architects is to produce buildings that have a, a zero impact on the environment. We know we can do net zero carbon buildings. We know we can do net zero water buildings. We know we can treat our waste on site or we can deal with some reciprocal arrangement where it gets treated in a kind of closed loop system. And those are all wonderful technical accomplishments, but as I said a minute ago, the thing that also turns my crank, and perhaps more so, are the buildings that go beyond an exemplary level of performance into the social and broader impacts that buildings can have. And if I were to pick three examples, and I, I pick these not because they're necessarily the best, but they happen to have been ones that I used in a book that I've just published. Um, I think of 60 Richmond East, which is a co-op project uh, in Toronto. And that is a building, I think it's likely lead gold. I don't think it's lead platinum. So it's a, it's a high performing building, but it deals with a problem that big cities like Toronto and Vancouver and some other cities in Canada are dealing with. And that's affordability. We're, we're mm -hmm. all used to that word. Um, but what you may not be aware of is that certainly with the statistics that I used in putting my book together, Vancouver has not only the most expensive real estate, but the lowest average household incomes of any city in the country. And Toronto is second in the cost of housing, and it's second to bottom in terms of the average family income. So the thing about 60 Richmond East is it works on the problem from both ends. It's a partnership between the Toronto Housing Corporation and the major owners in the hospitality industry. And what they wanted to be able to do was to provide their workers with affordable accommodation in the downtown where most of those people are needed. So they get off their shift at one o'clock or two o'clock in the morning and there's either no transit or very scarce transit to get out to the affordable neighborhoods in the city. And so I found that a compelling uh, way of dealing with the problem. And not only do they provide that housing, but they have a training center on the second floor of the building and a training kitchen on the ground floor that is a restaurant that operates as Hawthorne Restaurant. So that's the kind of thing I think that buildings it's not just a problem or a, a solution that we can quantify in terms of did we build it to budget? Does it meet the program? You know, how does it perform environmentally according to the lead or the li living building or some other metric? But what else does it do? And when you're investing millions of dollars in a piece of land as you are when you're building a building, it just takes a little bit of creativity and perhaps a little bit more money. And all of a sudden you can get a building that is let's call it a seed for that social and economic and cultural ecosystem that we call cities. 
And I think it's a very important example for just the reason you mentioned about providing affordable housing close to work. And in fact, that's, I just came from a resilience workshop in Calgary. And one of the big problems for future storms and severe weather events is that people working in hospitals and emergency centers sometime live miles away from them. Mm-hmm. And if they can't get across the city to their home, they're stranded. So being able to work um, and live close by is really important for overall city resilience. Mm-hmm. And, and I just, if I may, I'll touch on two other projects that I had in mind. And one was the Askew's Uptown Supermarket in Salmon Arm. Now, Salmon Arm is literally midway between Vancouver and Calgary, city of about 20,000 people. And um, the Askew's grocery stores have been operating, I think this the third generation owner, David Askew, who commissioned this store. Uh, Salmon Arm used to be a forest town, forestry town, and of course the industry has globalized, but it's also consolidated within the province of BC. And so there have been mill closures, particularly in small towns, and so the industry had been in a decline. And he wanted to give back to all of those families uh, connected to the industry who had, after all, supported his grocery store over three generations. So they designed that building with a huge wooden roof. And it wasn't a high-tech wooden roof. It was high-tech in terms of its engineering, but in terms of its material, it was two-by-fours and two-by-fours and plywood. And so they used, I'm going to say something like 220,000 board feet of softwood lumber that was all grown and and harvested locally. And because the technology was relatively simple, they could bid that job competitively among five mills and five contractors in the Salmon Mm, Arm area. So, and we know that the value of money that recirculates in the economy as opposed to money for products that we buy from outside our region or from overseas, it recirculates multiple times and it has much greater value than what we would derive from something, a product or a service that we buy from outside the area. So, uh, and it was poignant in a way that it was a, a food store because in a sense, it uses the same ethic as the slow food movement. It's to do with what can we create from the ingredients that we have locally. And I think it's a particularly good example at a time when our forestry industry is in perhaps a crisis is is too strong a word to use, but it's certainly in a period of of great difficulty with uh, tariffs and various other things happening. And so to see this idea of the 100-mile building, if you like, I think that's an uplifting story. What about missed opportunities? What are some of the most important opportunities for architects and engineers to deal with that you're not seeing and wished you were seeing? Um, I don't know whether missed opportunities. I mean, I think I think our knowledge base is is way ahead of what we are choosing as a society to realize at the moment. I, I wrote as long ago as 2005, I think it was, I was asked to contribute to the 50th anniversary edition of Canadian Architect. And it was funny because at that time, I had no longer had a professional relationship with Peter Busby, but it was interesting. He was also invited. And most of the people who made contributions were talking about something that had happened over the last 50 years. And both he and I chose to talk about the future. And the phrase that I used in that particular piece of writing was that we need to close the gap between what we know is achievable and what we actually achieve. And if there's a message that I can convey in this podcast, that's 
exactly what we need to do. And yes, I know that there are these mitigating factors, there are economic issues, there are political constraints, there's all kinds of things. But we've got to get away from simply making demonstration buildings and finding ways, leveraging ways to mainstream the technologies that we know we have at our disposal and um, building better buildings. And I think we also have a number of tools. I've spoken about the Rely standard, and I think that's an interesting one because it cherry picks from various existing green building standards, ranging from the Living Building Challenge to LEED to the Well Building Standard. And it essentially assembles best practices in relation to building design and in relation to community design. And I hope that that standard gains a bit of traction. But the other thing I think we've been missing out on is life cycle assessment. I think we now have a credit for it in LEED or a couple of credits. I can't remember exactly. Mm -hmm. It's not a very rigorous credit at this point. You simply have to demonstrate that the first design you did, or should I say the, the second design you did is 10% better in terms of life cycle assessment than the first one. So we need to have a, a lot more rigor. And we need to find a way of doing a full life cycle assessment on every building we propose. I think one of the things that people perhaps don't realize, and I can't remember exactly what the multiplier is, but greenhouse gas emissions that we put out into the world now have far greater consequence than the ones that we might be saving 40 years down the road. And just to use an example, I studied a building, I think it was an Acton Austri building, the Biological Sciences Building at UBC, and it won an award from the, our awards program several years ago. They had a program at UBC called UBC Renew. And with that program, they looked at existing buildings and they evaluated how much it would cost to upgrade that building to a current functional standards. And if that figure was two thirds or less than the cost of a new building, then they would renew the building. And the point of this story is that when that building came to us, it had fairly high energy consumption numbers but when you looked at the embodied energy that was saved by not knocking down a massive concrete building from the 1980s, uh, one realized that even if that building, if a new building had been built and designed to the highest energy standards that we had available at the time, it would take 40 years for those GHGs embedded in the concrete to be offset. I, I hope I've articulated that clearly enough. So saving a building and particularly a massive concrete building from demolition, mm -hmm. um, you can afford to have a higher level of operating energy probably for a very long period of time before the energy embodied in a new building is- Because uh, the upstream carbon is so high in a new building. Exactly. Yeah. Irrespective and, of the operating carbon. Exactly, yes. And so, you know, I, I, I see in Toronto and I see in Vancouver these enormous concrete high-rises going up. And I, I recognize that we need to increase density. We need to be creating mixed-use neighborhoods. We need a certain critical mass of people to have the various services and so forth functioning. But um, I, I am glad to see proposals now in Vancouver for 28-story wood buildings because those have got much lower embodied carbon footprints than the concrete equivalents. And, um, you know, I think that's a, a critical technology that we are embracing in Canada. And the, the sooner we can mainstream it, I think the better, better off we will be. 
Most of the architects and engineers I know really do want to make green buildings now. I don't think there are too many that aren't thinking about it. But no. what, what are the big barriers for clients to go green? What is it? Is it economic, social? What are you, what are you seeing? Um, I am not designing or talking to these clients directly. So my, my response to this question can only possibly be anecdotal. But cost is always the thing. I've had conversations with the Properties Trust at UBC that commissions their buildings, and they're not interested, even an institution with a reputation for green building that UBC has, they're not going to go out of their way to spend money on innovation. A lot of the buildings that they've realized have been done with uh, external grants and, and so mm -hmm. forth. So I guess in the marketplace, we're talking cost, and yet, one of the, the buildings that got an award from our program this year was Evolve One. And that's a building that is net zero. It's, it's done under the new LEED Net Zero Carbon Buildings Initiative. And it is reputedly a market building. Um, as an editor of a magazine, I have to take some of this stuff at face value because doing the research to verify how it compares in terms of per square foot lease costs uh, with other buildings of similar type in the area and all of that stuff is very difficult to do, uh, very time consuming to do. But certainly it was presented to us in that way that this is not intended to be a demonstration project, it's intended to be a market project. And so it is possible, it is possible. And yes, uh, I think the tenants that they've got in that building are ones who are predisposed to identify themselves with the highest performing green building that they can. But I guess the good news is more and more corporations are feeling that way. So. You know, we've just had a, a new low carbon initiative in BC and, and we've had 40 companies sign up to this. Uh, there was a business development meeting that I couldn't go to a, a week or so ago. And so I think there are more companies who are realizing from a purely commercial point of view that this is how they need to brand themselves. And perhaps, you know, if they philosophically, if not in terms of accounting, if, if they take some of their marketing budget and, and they mentally put it into the cost of the building, then that slight incremental cost that we might still be seeing, you can close the gap on that. And in terms of wood and concrete, we found that we're down into single digits of difference now with the Brock Commons building at UBC. Um, so the gap is closing. The gap is closing. Mm -hmm. And my sense just from talking with clients and people in general is that this year more than ever, even with the pushback from the Trump administration and, and Brexit and so forth, People are really starting to think about carbon. It's, I guess, maybe so many cities across Canada and the United States are just declaring climate emergencies that people are starting to pay attention in a way that they weren't before. Maybe there's hope on, on that score. Um, the, the shift from fossil fuel energy to renewable energies, which is very positive, like solar PV and wind power, is rapidly taking place around the world. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think most renewables now are at net parity or below, so they, they cost less than the cost of coal to generate the same number of joules of energy. But fossil fuels are very deeply embedded in our economy, and I'm just wondering, what's going to bridge the gap between getting from where we are now with fossil fuels and getting to renewables in the future? Any thoughts on that? If you want a glib and short answer, probably political courage, um, mm. because... That's not glib. We have never had a true cost accounting system for our fossil fuel extraction. 
if it was required of anybody, not just extracting fossil fuels, but basically doing anything to take a cradle-to-cradle -cradle approach, then there would be environmental restitution factored into the cost of the oil that we buy, and people would stop buying it because it would be astronomically expensive. Mm -hmm. So what we have at the moment is political expedience and political tightrope walking as far as the coming election and the buying of a pipeline is concerned. But I think at the end of the day, we have to depoliticize the environment. Uh, we cannot have elections fought around what is the best thing for the environment. We need to make environmental stewardship and restoration absolutely paramount and central to everything that we do. And so um, these declarations that we've had from municipalities, I'm not sure how, how many, I think uh, we've certainly had Halifax and Kingston and Vancouver, but there may be others by now, and a lot around the world. Um, I hope this is not rhetoric, but certainly when you see cross-party lines voting unanimously to declare uh, or to recognize the critical nature of, of the environmental emergency, that's a good thing. If that becomes the lens through which all prospective legislation is viewed and which actually materially affects the decisions that are made by councils, that is an awesome step forward. However, we recently had the juxtaposition of that climate emergency being declared by our federal cabinet, or even I think the House of Commons voted on it. And then the next day we, you know, we said a pipeline is going ahead. So. I think that even made the headlines of the Washington Post. So, you know, up until then, I guess, I was really hopeful that at least the municipal ones would be more than rhetoric. That was sort of a step back in my confidence, that particular juxtaposition of announcements. But I think we need to decouple this stuff from the election cycle, and we need to take it out of partisan politics, because uh, without a healthy environment, we don't have a way of sustaining ourselves. Do you think we're going to be able to get our act together as a species to really deal with these problems? Um, Is it going to become acute enough at some point where we say we have to do this now? There'll be a sort of a groundswell? I'm, I'm not going to live to see it. I hope that my grandson, now age two, will live to see the time at which our climate stabilizes again. And the other thing I do, I didn't mention it in the intro, but I teach at BCIT in the architecture program. So I'm now, I'm about to confront for the first time in September students born in the 21st century mm -hmm. and they face an entire lifetime of an unstable climate and the political and social impacts that come with that and I think they get it uh, in a way that perhaps my generation and uh, our generation uh, yes we get it intellectually but we don't feel it in the gut and I think uh, the younger generation really feels it because they are the ones who are going to live through this consequences and ha they're going to have to ride the very bumpy waves that are coming. Uh, we, we see it in the environment at the moment with the forest fires and the flooding in Gatineau and other places. Uh, and we're just beginning to see the political and social manifestations with the issues around the border wall on the US-Mexican border. People being displaced, partly sometimes, of course, by turmoil, political turmoil in their own countries, but also more and more of them are climate refugees who are finding that they can't work in subsistence agriculture anymore because they can't rely on the rains. They can't, you know, they don't have the water. They're not getting the crops, they're not getting the yields that they used to get. So I think this is going to prove to be a much greater problem even than the environmental one. 
We have the solutions to the environmental problem, we're just not implementing them. I don't think we've even begun to consider the solutions to the political problems at this point. You touched on climate refugees, and it's a huge problem. The UN is predicting that by 2050, we're going to have somewhere in the order of 250 million climate refugees, and, and some people say that those are very conservative numbers. Uh, and this is going to be one of the most critical challenges the world faces. What are some of the things that that our community, architects and engineers and developers, can actually do to assist or, or help? Well, I don't think we have the power to admit climate refugees from outside our borders. That rests with the federal government. But I think that even under the current circumstances and the recent provincial elections, I think we are still probably the leading liberal democracy in the, in the developed world. And we have opened our borders to refugees from Syria and elsewhere. I can understand that there are limits to, to how many people one can physically assimilate uh, or successfully assimilate on a proportional basis, both in terms of the sort of uh, economic cost, but also just in terms of the, of the disruption that this might cause. One hears stories, and I think most lately in Venezuela, the, the exodus from Venezuela, people now complaining that the influx of Venezuelans to Peru is lowering uh, wages and uh. it is increasing unemployment. So there are those very, very real and at this point, I'm going to say intractable because I don't have any solutions for well, it. Well, interestingly, have you read Maximum Canada by Doug Saunders? He, he posits that Canada is underpopulated. We really, to have a sustainable economy, should have somewhere in the order of 100 million people in Canada. We have 37. So mm -hmm. I think we could certainly do with some uh, immigrants here. And also our boomer population is aging. Mm -hmm. So we need some young blood. So I suspect Canada will be one of the places where this could be a very positive thing. I, I agree with you. And it's interesting. I sometimes, um, in my sustainable design classes, I have my students look at these, I'm not entirely sure what they're called, but they're sort of demographic profiles of different countries. And they, they stack up in a series of layers from age zero to 10, and one side is women and one side is men. And so by working your way up and down this diagram, you get this shape, this curvaceous shape, our society in the absence of immigration would almost be like a mushroom because we have a very high number of, of people over the age of 60 and we don't have a birth rate that's replenishing our numbers in the absence of immigration with the possible exception of Quebec. And so uh, you need to have this balance from a purely economic point of view. You have to have people coming into the workforce who are going to be able to support the social programs that are serving the needs of those people at the top of the diagram. So you look at somewhere like Mexico, and it's almost a pyramid. Uh, they've got, I think, a very significant percentage of their population is under the age of 20. And so one can imagine taking these different demographic diagrams from around the world and mashing them together in such a way that they all made harmonious sense. So that right, Venn Ven diagrams of, well, yeah, exactly. of what makes sense. But that's a very easy thing to do, you know, in a computer so program or on your desktop. But how do you do it in real life? Mm -hmm. um, so I don't think there's any getting away from the problem. And I'm, I'm certainly pro-immigration, absolutely. I think it's an important thing. And, and I, I'm still one of those people who hangs on to the belief that our diversity is our strength in Canada. So I am fully supportive of immigration. And the question is, how do we manage it? How do we make it so that it is not disruptive, but rather supportive of our 
goals as a society. And I don't think we've managed it yet. I mean, you just look at the size of the families that are coming in from Syria. Where do you find a seven-bedroom house in Canada that anybody can afford mm -hmm. to live in? So, yeah. I mean, at, even down at the yeah. level of detail, there are issues that we haven't been able to deal with yet. So it requires, I think, a lot of forward thinking, a lot of planning, a lot of infrastructure investment. And so where do we take that money from? Um, you know, do we ask the government to go into a even bigger deficit situation in order to provide infrastructure for immigrants? Is that going to result in an overwhelming number of applications? Probably. So I guess I'll simply finish by saying this is not an easy problem to solve. Uh, but by but the, one we need to think about. By, definitely. by the same token, I don't think walls and barriers are the answer. Yeah. Um, they may temporarily help us. I mean, I, I sort of use the metaphor of the medieval castle. I mean, if you decide to fortify your entire political boundary, it's almost like those who are privileged get to live within this castle and then you have the ravening hordes outside trying to get in. And that's, I don't think that's a world I want to live in, certainly not one that I want my grandson to grow up into. So um, I think within the purview of architects, we can certainly be supporting the kind of mixed-use developments that make our cities more livable. We should be looking for diversity rather than having the socioeconomic divisions in enclaves. There are many places in Vancouver which are essentially gated communities without gates. Uh, they're very, very narrow demographic profiles. And, you know, I think healthy cities are ones in which we're aware that there are other people who are unlike us and we respect that. When we become fearful of people who are not like us, that's when things begin to unravel. So to the extent that architects have a role in that, I think that's where we should put our efforts. Is there anything missing from the discussion of climate change that we should be thinking about, talking about? Um, as I said, I think the science is out there. Um, not everybody is listening to it, uh, we know, but uh, the science is out there. The consensus is is. 99.99% and we know what the solutions are. We just haven't chosen to implement them as quickly, as radically, as emphatically as we should be doing. And then I think what we've just been talking about, the, the opening up of the social and political consequences of climate change, I think that discussion is only really now beginning to happen. And I think that that is going to dominate discussions uh, in the years to come. What about people? Are there people or groups of people who should be playing more important roles that are currently not participating? Um, I think it's incumbent upon every one of us to participate. I remember sitting on a panel with Chris Lutkeman, who heads up the Arab Organization's Global Foresight Division. And so his job is to fly around the world, mostly to countries where Arab has got its offices, which I think is 140 countries potentially, to find out what is driving change in those areas. Certainly when you interview social workers in Sweden and farmers in southern Alberta, you're going to get slightly different sets of priorities. And so what he's been doing for years now is uh, he, he and his cohorts have been going around the world interviewing these people and they, they post the results without judgment to a website. So point of all of this is that 
when he is delivering presentations to audiences and he does a little gaming exercise with postcards that have various problems that certain regions of the world are confronting, he distills it down to three phrases. The first one is change is constant. And I don't think that's mm -hmm. new to any of us. And accelerating. Uh, it's accelerating, yes. And, and there is a point at which I think each one of us begins to feel that it's too fast for us to, to feel comfortable with. But in any event, change is constant. But the one that's really, I think, the most powerful is that the future is fiction. In other words, what we have in terms of technology, how we choose to live 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years down the line is actually entirely up to us. It's not preordained. And so we can dream and we can decide that the future we want is whatever we choose. And then the third is participation shapes our world. And so if we live in quasi-democracies, where ideally every single vote counts, then the way that we act, the way that we vote, um, my commentary on our political system is going to have to take another podcast, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> we could do that sometime. <laughs> but uh, we need to be out there and having our voices heard. And this is the first lecture I give to my students in my sustainable design class is that you don't want to you don't want to sit at home and wring your hands and say the world is going to hell in a handbasket you need to be out there and advocating for change so going back to your initial question we all have to do more we we've got it done with the pessimism uh, we have to focus on the things that we feel that we have control over and we have to go out there and make them happen or make the waves sufficient to have others make them happen so, and what are your thoughts right now on the notion of progress? I know <laughs> it's certainly taken a beating lately in the last few years with Brexit and the election of Trump in the States and the right wing in Europe. And it's giving a lot of liberals I know real anxiety about progress. What do you think about the idea of progress and the idea that we can make a positive difference in the world? Well, I might be a little bit of an outlier here because, uh, I think that there is a, a liberal idea of progress, and you rightly indicate that it's under threat from political changes in different parts of the world. Uh, and that's one that is based on free trade. It's based on globalization, lack of protectionism. It's also fairly technocentric. We, we seem to equate the idea of progress with new technology that helps us do things faster, more efficiently, quicker, more accurately, whatever. And my vision of progress, really, particularly in the context that we've been talking about, is anything that enhances the relationship between humankind and the natural world, to me, is progress. And whether that involves a piece of technology or whether it doesn't is immaterial to me. I'm certainly not by, seduced by the idea that we should be establishing a colony on Mars. Um, when you look at the... No, we, we, can't, we can't even live here right now. Well, exactly. <laughs> when, 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 live on when, Mars. <laughs> when, you look at, when you look at the problems that have to be solved in order to do that, they're exactly the problems we have on this planet, only magnified tenfold. So mm -hmm. uh, oh, we, need to, we sure. need to concentrate on the things that are consequential. And, and to me, I even have 
you know, I, I wouldn't say I'm anti-electric cars. No, I'm not. I mean, I, obviously they're better than having gasoline-powered cars. But um, again, in talking to my students, don't simply accept the idea that an electric car is a wonderful thing because the impacts of cars and particularly privately owned automobiles are that every one of them has to have space on a road. Every one of them has to have two parking places because it gets parked at home, it gets parked at work, whatever. So there's a humongous infrastructure that we have been devoting lots of GHD emissions to over decades. And an electric car... Not is, to mention resources, just, just keep up the infrastructure. Exactly. So an electric car is not going to change that. And I think that what we need is not necessarily a change in technology. We need to have a change in values. And so I think the car to go where you have a, an asset sitting in a single spot on the road and you have it used probably 18 out of 24 hours a day is a much more important advancement than an electric car that that's my feeling if that car can be electric as well then you know we win on all counts but i think it's changes in attitude change in our value system and our priorities that are really the issue to me and so i don't equate technology with progress without looking at it critically let's just put it that way so what gives you hope that we can move forward, we can progress in the way you're talking about. Are you hopeful? Well, you know, I spend four months between May and, and August not speaking to 20-something-year-olds. But when I'm teaching at uh, BCIT, I find my students give me hope. Mm. Um, they give me hope because I see in them, for the most part, not, not universally, but I see in them that change in values that I think is essential to us actually solving our problems. So I think that the 20-something-year-olds are probably not quite ready to be in decision-making positions. But as I said, the ones who really feel the impacts of climate change, all of this stuff, who have a lifetime of it to confront, the ones who feel it viscerally are the ones who should be in the decision-making positions. So. I really think that that is where the hope lies. And that's not to say that, you know, I'm giving up on our generation, but all too often when I speak to people of similar age to me, there's a sort of dismissiveness, oh, you know, we're all screwed anyway kind of thing. And, um, and of course, you know, they're looking at, what, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years max that uh, they need to continue and survive as the status quo begins to change. Um, we talk about the new normal because we've experienced something else, but my students talk about the normal because they mm. haven't known a summer when there haven't been dreadful forest fires in Alberta or in British Columbia. There's been major flooding somewhere in Canada for all of their you know, conscious lives from the time they've been eight or 10 years old. So, you know, I, I think that's the difference. We see this as the new normal and we somehow have to get back to the old way, but for them, it's really in their face. That's all they've experienced. If your students were listening to this podcast, what advice would you have for them about what they can do to make a difference? Well, I think I'll go back to that idea of, of uh, the future is fiction and participation shapes our world. But I also make reference, I don't know whether you're familiar with a New York-based sustainable lifestyle blogger called Olden Wicker, but she ran a very successful 
blog sort of talking to people her followers about where they should buy their best local organic produce and um, you know what coffee was more ethically sourced than than others and then she suddenly had an epiphany and she turned around and she said you know what really we should be doing instead of devoting that extra time and extra money that it takes to go out to the farmer's market and you know go here and go there and to walk to that store that's got the ethical coffee we should be spending at least some of that time advocating mm, right and and from an architectural point of view i don't think that means that we as architects stop designing the best buildings we possibly can but i think as a profession we need to be more vocal and we need to be making bold and emphatic statements about things that we we think are positive and things that we think are negative um whether it's legislation or whether it's uh, all manner of things you know i th i think we need to stand up and be counted because we are a creative bunch we are trained in problem solving i would argue that for a lot of us the systems-based problems have got more complex than we were trained to to solve i mean most of, certainly people of my age were trained in the modernist idea that uh, solving a problem was an objective thing and it was sort of an iterative process and if you followed it in a linear fashion you'd find a solution but things are way more complex than that now you know the changes that we see in the education system not simply the post-secondary system but i've got kids now who are in grade 11 and so i've watched them going through school and the problem-solving skills, their sophistication of their understanding of issues relating to climate change and so forth, is actually very heartening. Um, you know, that generation has to turn it into action as well. But that is what gives me heart and hope. It's, uh, it's the kids I teach at BCIT, the kids that I have, you know, raised in my own family. And I think the changes are there. They're just not happening quickly enough. Uh, I think what's happened is that because of the prevarication over the last two or three decades, the climate system has run away from us. Mm -hmm. and, and so we are facing, not me, but uh, my grandson is facing two or three generations. You know, his entire lifetime is going to be climate unstable. Um, the inertia in the climate system is so huge that even if we stopped emitting GHGs tomorrow, it would probably be, what, 50 years before we had a meaningful change i mean measurable change science can measure pretty small things so we'd probably see that the the ship was turning around but in terms of changing the erratic and very severe nature of the flooding and the fires and all the other things that we're we've talked about uh that's going to take decades it's going to take decades but uh, i do see the hope there so finally mm -hmm. because we're coming to the end of the conversation I'd like to ask you three rapid fire questions to wrap up our interview. Mm -hmm. The first question is what books related to these issues do you most often recommend or gift to other people? Um, interesting question to ask somebody who's visually impaired because you may or may not realize that uh, most of the stuff that relates to the environment and so forth is published primarily in hard copy. It's something I can't read. Um, I, I was really hoping you were just going to Tell us about your book and recommend it. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I can recommend that book. Um, but and and we'll, we'll put the link to it in, in, in the uh, uh, show notes. Yeah, so I actually, I, get, I gave away a copy of my book uh, this afternoon to a, a colleague here in Vancouver. And yes, this is, it's an, an e what I'll do is I'll talk about that quickly and then I'll tell you what books I actually read in order to uh, come up with a, 
with the arguments that I came up with. So yes, the book is called The Architecture of Engagement. And I have to say it's so freshly published that it's still not available through a commercial source. And that's only a mild problem because I'm not, it's not actually a commercial project. It took me so long to put this together that the urgency of getting the information out, I think, uh, supersedes any requirement for remuneration. So I've, it's an ebook called The Architecture Engagement, and it is available from me directly. If you send me an email, I'll send you a copy is sort of how it works. So essentially what it argues is what I've been saying all along, that, that the solution to our problems is not an objective, iterative, technological one alone. If we don't solve the social and political problems, it doesn't matter how good the technology is, it will benefit a small number of people and the rest of humanity will suffer the consequences. So I can make the book available to anybody who's interested. Um, well, we could put the link to it, uh, yeah. a share file or Dropbox on the, on the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. And so in researching it, I read quite a number of books. And, and this whole book came about because I, over the course of my time as editor of SADMAG, I've reviewed hundreds, probably 500 projects that have come to me with detailed descriptions. Some of them submitted for the awards program. Others sent in press release form speculatively in the hope that it might be published. And I would say... Even now, the vast majority speak to the technical prowess of their building as opposed to the other stuff that I've spoken about. And then I noticed that there was this uh, much smaller percentage of buildings that, uh, that have that bigger story to them. And I've mentioned a couple of them at least earlier on. Um, and so what I decided to do was to visit all of these buildings across Canada that I was interested in and do my own vetting by interviewing not only architects who I knew were going to tell me good stories about their buildings, but also building occupants and housing uh, projects, owners of Askew's store, of uh, one or two other buildings as well. So um, the whole point there was to verify that these buildings were actually doing what they said they were doing. And then I put them all together in this book. So there's a portfolio. And, of and were they mostly doing that? Were they well, the, the ones the... that weren't, I didn't include. <laughs> how, how many uh, tours did you do? Uh, I toured, I shortlisted 30 buildings and 20 of them made the cut yeah. into, the, uh, into the book. That's pretty good. And so they go from Victoria, BC, all the way across to Halifax. And they include uh, projects in Thunder Bay and uh, Sudbury, Edmonton, Calgary, Winnipeg, you know, so all the way across the country. Yeah, and they're very varied. They're private sector, they're public sector, they're big, they're small. But in any event, going back to the books, I read The Spirit Level mm -hmm. by Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett, uh, turned into a TED Talk. And uh, I read... One of my favorite books. Yeah, Prosperity Without Growth by Tim Jackson, English economist. Again, there's a TED Talk. Mm -hmm. And I yep. read uh, Paul Hawken, uh, Natural Capitalism, I think was the first one, and then um, Blessed Unrest. There was Bill McKibben's, I don't know how to pronounce it, the, the Earth with two A's. Um, there was Richard Lauv's Last Child in the Woods, which is all to do with our relationship with nature. And, uh, and also Jeremy Rifkin, Third Industrial Revolution. And, and The Empathic Civilization were two of his books that I read. So that's a handful of 
the ones. That's a good list. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I should have mentioned about the book, this is the cool thing about the book. Uh, I do provide people with a printable version if they want it, but uh, it's got links embedded in it. So where you see a reference in the text, you can click on it if you're on an internet-enabled device, and it will take you to a web page, to a TED Talk, to a YouTube video. That So all of the reference material is it's not embedded in the book, and it's not within the file itself, but so long as the offerings on YouTube and other places don't change, then you'll be able to link to those things directly. And so I thought that was a, a useful thing to do and an honest way of showing where I had got my information and influences from. So, you know, that can make for a, a fun read. And very, very useful too with the links. Mm -hmm. Second question, if you had the power to implement one change, one innovation, or one policy in cities around the world that would have the effect of significantly reducing CO2 emissions or helping cities adapt to climate change, what would it be and why? Well, I think this is probably something I've spoken to already, and that's the idea of, of cross-partisan, so non-partisan votes on declaring a climate emergency. And I know that we're still just at the rhetorical stage of that because I think the first one of these was done probably no earlier than January of 2019. So there's not been a lot of time for legislation to be considered and implementation and so forth. But I think the first thing we need is a public declaration on the part of our municipalities that they acknowledge that we are in an emergency. And um, my understanding from that point forward is that when they review legislation, they're looking at it through that lens. And if we could really get ourselves to that position, I think that would be a wonderful step forward. I think that's very effective. And the third question is, if you could publish a full page spread <laughs> in the Sunday New York Times, or you can pick any newspaper of your choice, of anything you wanted, written or graphic, what would it be? Yeah, you know, that's a really difficult one. Um, <laughs> we've just, you know, you remember the way that the photograph of Alan Kurdi washed up on the shores of the Mediterranean. Oh, yes. Touched the hearts of the world. And I think there's been a recent one. I haven't seen it myself, but I heard it discussed this morning on CBC um, of a, a father and oh, a son. Oh, the Mexican father and a son exactly. washed up. Oh, and a daughter awful. washed up in the Rio Grande. Yeah. Uh, so... Have they manifested change? I don't know. I, you know, I think one of the problems of the the rapid fire news age that we live in is that we're all overstimulated and oversaturated yeah. with and desensitized. Desensitized ultimately. So we're sort of inured to these. And yes, I think everybody finds it heart wrenching when they see that, but it doesn't routinely turn into action, is, is my feeling about all of this. And so what would I do with a double-page spread in the New York Times? I don't know. I might, I might go back to that, that triptych of Chris Lutkeman, which is to do with, uh, as I say, it's to do with the future is fiction and participation changes our world. Or, or I think we need to get that message out. You know, don't become a victim of the future become a participant in shaping mm. it. Yeah, so I, th I think that could be very effective. Yeah, and, and I think I'll leave that to, you know, I won't design the message myself, but I think if that's the heart of the message, I'll find my best graphic designer friend and ask that they put their mind to that. And Jim, before we sign off, uh, where can listeners reach you? 
What social media links would you like well, to give them? I work with a couple of uh, organizations, clearly SABMAG, which has a Facebook presence and a Twitter presence. Uh, mm -hmm. I work with the RAIC. We haven't talked about that, but I'm uh, the executive director of the RAIC Foundation. So RAIC also has a social media pre presence. I don't have my own social media feeds. Uh, I rely on those. Um, but as, as I said, my own email, which you can add to the podcast, uh, architectsatelus.net, is the most direct way of getting to me. Um, when it comes to uh, the, the social media posts that are done through the organizations I work with, I contribute to those, certainly. Sometimes in the case of SABMAG, it's, uh, you know, they post editorials that I've written. And then you will find me on LinkedIn. That's another way of contacting me. I think my current, because I've got about five different jobs, the one that's up there right now is the REIC Foundation Executive Director. So uh, if you think you're looking for the editor of SABMAG and that's what you find, it's also me. So um, I hesitate to put a email address on the internet. So maybe LinkedIn is the best way to do that. Mm -hmm. That's fine. Absolutely. That's yeah. great. And certainly we can do a Dropbox. And I think if we set it up correctly, I will get an invitation every time somebody wants to access that Dropbox link. Because I'll, I will have to, I will have to give them permission to uh, to access the Dropbox. Is there anything else you'd like to ask of listeners to ask of them? Yeah, I I think I would be interested to know. You know, I, I've given lectures on this topic to my students. I've given, you know, I, I've expressed these opinions to my peers in the architectural profession. Sometimes I'm viewed as a little bit of a heretic, but I'd be really interested to know what listeners think. Does any of this resonate? And if so, what resonates? Because a lot of this, yes, of course, I, I do research, but a lot of this is the intuition of just living on the planet for the years that I have and observing what I think are some very negative trends in our society at the moment um, and wishing it could be otherwise. So, you know, I'd be very happy to, to be part of a movement that uh, sees it a different way. That's great. Well, that's a really lovely place to end. Th thank you very much for your time, Jen. It is my pleasure. Thank you. You can find links to more information about this podcast and to notes about the books and references we discussed at tfcipodcast.com. And if you like the podcast, please let us know by rating it on the Apple iTunes podcast website. Until next time, thank you for listening.